0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by
1: N2K.
2: Anything that needs to be done in order to sort of change the game needs to be done with sort of this concept of being reasonable and proportional.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, my conversation with Adam Flatley. He's Director of Threat Intelligence at Redacted. All right, Joe, let's uh, jump right in here with some stories. What do you have for us this week? Dave,
0: my story this week comes from Amir Awaita over at We Live Security, Hmm. Uh, and he has a fascinating article for the new year. Happy New Year, by the way, Dave.
1: Happy New Year.
0: Uh, 22 cybersecurity statistics to know for 2022. Hmm, Okay. So try saying that three times fast. (laughs) Right. Now, Amir has a, uh, a a whole list of things. I'm not gonna go through all of them because most of them are some of them are not germane to the social engineering nature of this podcast, but there are some interesting highlights in here. Uh let's start with item number one. Uh 2021 saw the highest average cost of a data breach hmm. in the past 17 years. Uh it now cost four point two four million dollars to uh for a data breach. Hmm. Wow. That's a which lot which is Pretty high. Number two, you're talking
1: about real money.
0: That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Item number two is that the COVID-powered shift to remote work had a direct impact on the cost of these data breaches. Hmm. Uh, The average data breach cost was 1.7 million dollars higher, 1.07 million dollars higher, where remote work was a factor in causing the breach. So, Hmm. for some reason, and I'd like to know, I'd like to see more research on this, but being remote leads to a more significant breach, probably because you have to add some kind of access for people who aren't within your perimeter, right? Mm -hmm. The idea of their perimeter is gone in that case. So it's easier to get in. Okay. So here we get into some real social engineering uh, statistics. The most common cause of data breaches was pilfered user credentials, Mm. usually harvested from some kind of phishing site or something. Uh, The, uh, these were responsible for about 20% of breaches And the average cost of these breaches was $4.3 million, almost $4.4 million. Hmm. Um, The highest ask for ransomware occurred in 2021, $70 million. I feel like I want to put my pinky up next to my (laughs) lip and say $70 million. Wow. Uh, Phishing attacks were connected to 36% of breaches. That's an increase of 11%. So phishing remains... Remarkably effective. Um, this could be attributed to the COVID pandemic, but I, I don't know. I, I think it's. Um, I think these guys are just getting better at their art form.
1: Yeah, I mean, it works, right? It still works. It, as, I it guess, as long as it works, that's how they're going to still use it. Exactly. Social engineering attacks are the gravest
0: threat to the public administration, accounting for sixty-nine percent of public administration breaches uh, analyzed by Verizon. This is from the uh, Verizon DBIR.
1: So does That's that mean like government organizations? Is that- yes, government organizations. Okay. They I uh, see.
0: social engineering attacks were were responsible for sixty nine percent of those being successful. Wow. Got to sk- skip a bunch here uh, down to number ten. We get to cryptocurrency investment scams remain as popular as ever,
1: and I I, I think back <laughs> to our NFT discussions Dave. <laughs> yeah, shocker! I I'm right. shocked, shocked to find. <laughs> That there would be scamming among <laughs> right. these these uh, rapidly evolving uh, technologies.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I had, a, uh, I had a conversation with somebody when we were talking about NFTs where somebody made their own NFT, sold it to themselves for $100,000, and then put it on the market for $30,000. And somebody said, wow, that's a 70% discount and snatched it right up. Mm. <laughs> so I'm thinking, you know, that's... Unethical, but man, I could make thirty thousand dollars in no time at all if I knew how smart (laughs) contracts worked in NFTs. Um, Okay, (laughs) (laughs) which you probably shouldn't do that, but I mean, it's I I, I'm still baffled by the NFT phenomenon.
1: Yeah, you and me still baffled by it. Yeah,
0: Uh, all the way down to number seventeen. Recent years have seen threat actors moving from just infesting systems with ransomware to double extortion, Mm. uh, and that is no exception this year uh it was double extortion was 8.7% in 2020 and now it's 81% of yeah. ransomware attacks in
1: yeah, 2021. Yeah, I would say that that was one of the big stories for right. last year was the shift to double extortion, that for yeah. sure.
0: I I maintain that you should still not use that as a calculus for whether or not you pay a ransom because there is no guarantee that these guys are going to keep the data secret. Um mm-hmm. in fact there's evidence to the contrary of that. Hmm. Um, that, that being said, uh, if you don't pay the ransom, there is a 100% probability that they're going to disclose it. That That's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, weigh that one way or the other for your own risk model uh, and whether or not you want to trust these criminals with uh, keeping their mouths shut. I, I just don't I, – I don't see any reason to do that. Yeah. And additionally, you have still suffered a data breach, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: And that that needs to be responsibly disclosed. Uh, or disclose rather not responsible disclosure is for other other things. <laughs> all right, all the way down at the end of this, uh, the last three points in 2020, the FBI's Internet Crime Center, uh, it's actually Internet Crime Complaint Center received a record-breaking almost 800,000 cybercrime complaints with wow. reported losses being responsible for 4.2 billion dollars in losses. Hmm. Um, here's a here's a big social engineering statistic. Business email compromise remains the costliest cybercrime. Uh yeah. with losses surpassing $1.86 billion in 2020. Not only is it costly in total, but per event, it's very costly for the organizations that that are that suffer one of these attacks. Yeah, uh, you really, really have to um have to uh have policies in place that protect your organization from a business email compromise attack because once uh, uh, the email of a a significantly high enough person in the organization chart gets compromised, you have a different problem. Uh, So once you, once you suffer the cyber attack, now you're going to suffer the business email compromise attack. And that is Mm -hmm. going to be very, very costly.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think about how, um, you know, lots of organizations will have uh, sort of old school, uh, techniques in place where, uh, you know, any check above this amount must be signed right. by more than one person, you know, mm-hmm. and those things, those work, theirs are helpful. get another set of eyes on that to make sure, uh, to, as we always say here to slow down, right? There's yep. some things slowing down is going to could in the long run, help, uh, help your organization for sure.
0: You know, that's a good point. All of these social engineering attacks, almost all of them have this, this created sense of urgency about them. That mm-hmm. that you have to do this for me and you have to do it right now. Don't think about it, just do it. Don't think about it, just do it. Uh, and whenever somebody starts doing that to you, you should be immediately going, whoa, 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 stop. Stop right here. We're not doing mm-hmm. it this way. We are right. absolutely not doing it this way. We're going to do the, the, the slow and methodical way. And if you think that, uh, you know, if you, person who says you're my boss, think that thinks that's the case, show up at my desk right now and fire me. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the final point here is uh, the elderly were disproportionately affected by cybercrime. Uh, 28% of total fraud losses were sustained by victims over the age of 60. Mm. Uh, now we've talked about this before. Uh, this is usually the product of older people suffering much larger losses than younger people. And actually the, the case is that if you look at who's more likely to be uh to be hit by a, a an online scam, it's actually the younger person that's more likely to be victimized, successfully successfully victimized by an online scam. But when they are victimized, their losses are much, much lower than an older person's losses. Mm, mm-hmm. um, older people are like hitting the jackpot if you're successful, right? Because mm-hmm. they have much more money to lose. Uh, right. Younger people generally don't have it, so that's why they don't lose it. Um mm it's it's an interesting article it's it's 22 points long and it's a short read, but I wanted to talk about it because it's the new year and I wanted to do something kind of
1: uh I don't
0: know gimmicky I
1: guess <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough <laughs> you're just you're, when when everybody zigs you zig right that's right that's- <laughs>
0: I'm the consummate uh, podcasting professional, Dave. There you go.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, fair enough. But I I, I mean, we joke, but it is good information, a good good reminder and good things as we're heading off into this new year. I think the thing that really resonates with me is just uh, be sure you check in with those friends and relatives of yours uh, who don't know about this stuff, uh, particularly elderly folks who are... Um, you know, I, I always think of them as being sitting, sitting ducks and I, and I don't mean that in a, you know, in a derogatory way. I I mean, they're, they're easy to be victimized. So just keep an eye on them and, um, look out for them, make sure they know that you're there and that if something does happen to them, that you're not going to judge them, that they didn't do anything wrong, that being scammed is not a moral failure, Right, uh, not a, not a to... moral
0: failure on the victim's part. Let's say it yeah. that way. Yeah, it well, is a moral yes. failure
1: on <laughs> absolutely. No, yes, you're, I stand corrected. Yes, right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. You're not um, you're not
0: the person that has the moral failing if, yeah. if you're victimized by this. The the other person is the is the immoral one.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, a good list, and uh, we will have a link to that article in the show notes. Uh, my story this week, uh, this comes from the Baltimore Sun. This is a, a story local to you and I. This is written by Justin Fenton, who uh, does a lot of uh, good reporting here in our neck of the woods. Uh, the title of the article is Criminal Indictments Filed Against Maryland Company That Targeted Baltimore Lead Paint Victims Settlements. Hmm. So let me unpack this here. Um, of course, lead paint uh, is a problem. Uh, Particularly here on the East Coast. Yeah, yeah. Because we have Um, older
0: buildings, much older buildings than they do in the West Coast.
1: Right. So uh, lead paint, of course, is poisonous. And so uh, there are folks who have been um, affected by lead paint. And for a variety of reasons, they end up uh, receiving settlements from uh, folks because of the injuries that they they sustained or their family sustained as a result of uh, lead paint. And very often what happens in a settlement like this is that you uh, agree to what's called a structured settlement. And that basically just means that rather than someone giving you a big lump sum of money, they're going to pay you X amount of dollars over X amount of years. Right. Right. Uh, And that makes it easier on the folks who have to pay out. It increases their ability to pay more people more money over time because they're not hit with a big uh, amount all at once. Well, uh, there are folks out there who will uh, seek out people who have these structured settlements and basically offer to buy them out. Right. So they'll say, hey, instead of uh, taking 10 years or 20 years to get all this money, how about I give you this lower amount of money right now, and then I will receive the payments over the course of these several years. Right. That's basically how it works. Mm -hmm. Have I missed anything, Joe? I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. This sounds, I mean, there are ads for companies that do this. Well, and that's what we're getting to here with this story. Um, the folks who have been indicted here um, by the state of Maryland uh, put up billboards uh, all over Baltimore and surrounding areas mm-hmm. um, that were looking for people who had structured settlements for lead paint, uh, looking to contact them. Um and what these folks then did was they would get in touch with these folks who had the the structured settlements, and they would offer them way less than what would be an appropriate amount. Right. Uh, in some cases, the lead paint victims received only eight percent of the value of their settlement. Whoa! Um, yeah, that's really really the- low. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, like really, like you should get you should get more than fifty of- percent. Well, the state's attorneys. Uh, General's office uh, said that these folks um, they they acquired structured settlement payments that had a value of twenty one million dollars, belonging to ninety five different people, and um, but they gave these folks less than seven million dollars. So so, so
0: let's do that number again. How,
1: how many yeah. millions? $21 twenty one million dollars is what they uh, is what the value of the settlements were, mm-hmm. but the victims would end up receiving less than $7 million after they dealt with these folks who were indicted. Okay. So less than a third of the money that was owed ended up going to the victims. So the the people who have been indicted in this case received over two-thirds of the money or were scheduled right. to receive over two-thirds of the money. Now, where this Falls into the uh, scam ca- category, according to the state's attorney, is that there are requirements that folks who agree to these sorts of um, accelerated payments receive independent professional advice and sign off on it. Right,
0: and the so uh, so the independent in, the independent advisors sign off on on the
1: settlement. Correct. And right. I suspect that this is something, and, and again, we're talking about what happens in Maryland here. I, I suspect right. this is a state by state kind of thing. But uh, so what the, What I'm putting together from this article is that that is in place to help protect people from just this kind of thing. So yep. there, there's nothing wrong with me saying, hey, you know what? I, I, I My circumstances are such that uh, you know, Joe, I have this structured settlement, and boy, it would really make my life easier if I could get my hands on some of this money earlier. And you said, Dave, hey, no problem. I'll buy it out from you. Let's work up a deal. There's nothing wrong right. with that, right? right. But uh, in order to do that, you and I would have to meet with a third-party person who would then look over the terms of our agreement – Uh, typically this would be an attorney, look over the terms of our agreement and say, yep, this looks legit. There's no ripoff here. Everybody is coming into this with their eyes wide open, and they sign off on that, and away we go. Mm -hmm. In this case, the folks who are offering these settlements, they had hired the, and I'm putting air quotes in here, the independent professional. So, so, so a little bit of a conflict of interest, would you say? Just a little bit, yes. Right. <laughs> uh, so the individual who they were recommending, saying, oh, we work with this person all the time, they're independent, they're you know completely on the up and up, uh, turns out that person was on the side of the people who were trying to buy out these structured settlements. Mm. In fact— Uh, Not only was that person part of this, which, again, the state of Maryland is saying is a scam, uh, he has been disbarred uh, after being charged by federal prosecutors with taking bribes as a member of the county liquor board. (laughs) Okay. He he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to four years in federal prison and was released in in 2020. So – this guy has a lot going on. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah, he's a busy on, dude. on the wrong side of the law, <laughs> on the wrong side of the law. So I, this is a, a sort of a long roundabout way to say that, despite there being protections in place, good faith protections in place, the. You know, the state saying we're going to try to put things here so that people have to slow down, have to get an outside set of eyes on this to make sure to try to help people from getting ripped off. Right. These scammers found a way around that.
0: Yeah. You know what I think um, should happen is the uh, the state's attorney, Brian Frosch, who's the attorney general. Um, yep. First off, he's quoted in here as saying that these these people, uh, the company's called Access Funding. They preyed on victims of lead paint poisoning. Um, yep. and one of the things that lead paint poisoning does or lead poisoning does is it gives you brain damage. Yeah. Right. It yeah. makes it harder for you to deal with these kind of things. It it damages your cognitive capabilities. So they yeah. went after some very vulnerable people here and deprived them of their quote vital lifelines, according to Attorney General uh Frost, who who I've who I've worked with before. And we've uh we have done presentations together. He's he's a good guy. I like this guy. Yeah.
1: Um yeah, and I he's agree. he's
0: really interested in protecting uh vulnerable populations, uh, like this. So this is right in his wheelhouse. Um, but you know, you know what? I don't know that this will happen, but what I'd like to see happen is that these guys get to keep the money that they were, um, that they were given by these guys and they just get the, the structured settlement payments back. Right. That's Mm -hmm. what I would like to see happen. So that, so that they, these, these people who were scammed out of a large portion of the victims, uh, keep the seven million dollars that they they got, but then they also have their uh, their payments restored. There's a one part of this story that really angers me about this. There there is a uh, a family. I, I, I'm sure that uh, everybody around Baltimore remembers the name Freddie Gray, uh, mm-hmm. but Freddie Gray was the the reason that the Baltimore riots happened. Uh, he, was, uh, he was he was he died in police custody, and his family received a settlement for $435,000 and it was one of these structured settlements. Access Funding bought that settlement for $54,000. Wow. That is yep. for like for like 12% of of what the deal was. And this was approved by a Prince George's County judge mm-hmm. as well. I think that mm-hmm. judge is is culpable here as well. I think that needs to be investigated a little bit further.
1: Yeah, I mean it just – it strikes me as sort of being – it's along the lines of payday loans. You know, it's just predatory. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it's, it's just predatory. People who don't have the means um, are in tough a tough situation and people are preying on that. Um, I guess, you know, the good news here is that the attorney general has indicted these folks. Of course, good. You know, they are – they. Um, they are innocent until proven guilty and uh, uh, will get their day in court. But um, certainly seems as though uh, the state has a good case against them, and uh, we'll see how it moves through. So uh, I guess the the message to our listeners is uh, if you hear uh, someone you know who has received a structured settlement, your ears should perk up right? and uh, let them know that there are these folks out there who will prey on people who have these structured settlements and just, just make sure that they that they are receiving good third party uh counsel from someone who's on the up and up, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, that is my story this week. Again, we will have a link to that in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. <laughs>
0: Dave, our catch of the day comes from a listener named Brady who writes, thought you might like to use this one on your show. Interesting that they splurged for a full color, thick card stock, but did not professionally proofread the document by someone who speaks English. Needless to say, we did not send them any screenshots. Love the podcast. Well, thank you, Brady. And Brady sends two pictures along that come from a company that, that sells things through Amazon. Uh, Dave, why don't you read the contents of the first picture?
1: Yeah, well before I get to that, let me just okay. describe what this is because I think folks I, I <laughs> and boy, do we get a lot of stuff from Amazon. Yes. And if, if you order enough from Amazon, I I've certainly seen these cards, right? Yes. Where basically they're telling you, you know, uh, we'll do something for you if you if you do something for us. So, all right, let me read it here. It says right. um It says, Dear valued customer, thank you for purchasing Automatic. We hope this product is working well for you. To return the great trust from you, you can get a $20 free Amazon gift card by sharing your shopping experience. You can use this gift card on Amazon to pay for what you buy. Amazon has been encouraging customers to share their shopping experience. Your positive opinions will be an important reference for others. It will encourage our team to provide more professional service and products. All steps to get a gift card, post your review at Amazon, log into your Amazon account, click your account, click your order, find our products, click write product review, send a review screenshot with your order ID in the email, subject, or ad on our WhatsApp. An e-gift card will be sent to you within 24 hours. If there is anything you not so clearly with using it, you are waiting to send the message to us. Our R&D team will support you during 24-hour working hours. Thanks and best wishes. So what's happening here- It really falls apart in the the end, doesn't it? Right, it it does. Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's like they ran out of money for the translating service. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And then just had somebody who speaks a little bit of English do it. Yes. So what this is, this is not not a scam that's targeting Brady. Uh, Mm -hmm. In fact, you may actually get a $20 gift card. But what they're doing is you're essentially buying a five-star review. Yeah. If you don't write a five-star review, you're not getting a twenty-dollar gift card. <laughs> it's just not <laughs> happening. You right. write a three-star review, uh, you're getting. You're not getting anything. Uh, but I want to point out this is against Amazon's terms and conditions. Uh, right. You're not allowed to pay people for their reviews, uh, mm-hmm. and that's that's what these are doing here. So you ever see the? Uh, you ever wonder how how does this thing have so? How does this product have so many five-star reviews? This is how. This right
1: here. Yeah. Yeah. So here's a question for you, Joe. You get something yep. like this. You get to this postcard. Do you rat them out? Do you do you? Do you, I, <laughs> do you let Amazon know? What do you I do? Might, I might yeah. rat them out. Yeah. yeah. I might do that. I, I, I might be
0: inclined to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame that it's come to this. But but right. I, I've read articles that talk about how this really does make a difference. If you're selling things on Amazon, Absolutely. getting those five-star reviews bumps you up to the top of the list. And that can yep. be a real difference maker for now, the success of your your uh, your your endeavor with Amazon.
0: I want to point out that it is perfectly fine to send an email saying, "Hey, please review us uh on Amazon." And and you can encourage people to write a five-star review. You right. just may
1: not Compensate them for that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Bribes are against Amazon's (laughs) terms and conditions. Right. 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 Yes. All right. Well, our thanks to uh, Brady for sending that in to us. Uh, We would love to hear from you. If you have a catch of the day or a story you'd like us to consider for the show, you can send it to us at hackinghumans at the cyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Adam Flatley. He is the director of threat intelligence at an organization called Redacted. Uh, interesting conversation. Here's my talk with Adam Flatley.
2: So um, the the traditional model of dealing with ransomware actors is pretty much the same as what, the, what has been done with most types of cyber criminals, um, where Um, Sometimes the private industry and law enforcement will share information, they will try and track down the perpetrators of these crimes. Most of them are coming from somewhere overseas, and so it involves working with uh, liaison organizations overseas uh, with either going through Interpol or directly going to other sort of federal law enforcement agencies in these other countries, and then working with them to um arrest the perpetrators. So that's sort of the traditional way of doing things.
1: And what we but we've, we seem to have come up short here and and without being too <laughs> coy about it, I mean, there's a big issue with Russia.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that's where the traditional model breaks down. Um there's still a lot of great work going on in in sort of the traditional way of doing things because there are some Ransomware actors that are operating out of out of countries that have a, a good legal relationship with the U.S., but the problem, as you identified, is really when you're dealing with a country that is either unable or unwilling to work with the U.S. in a law enforcement uh, manner, and it's especially tough when the government is either you know partially complicit. With the, with the ransomware actors, um, you know, if they're, you know, willfully ignoring them because they're enjoying the havoc that they're causing around the world, or in some cases, uh, there may even be profiting from what the ransomware actors are doing by taking their cut uh, in, in their profits in order to uh, sort of pay for the protection that they're providing. It's very much like what we saw with organized crime. You can think of it uh, in that light where, you know, large criminal organizations would corrupt the police um and then have the police shelter them for, you know, a a cut of or a skim of of the profits.
1: And so what options then are on the table? I mean, are, are we talking about uh, diplomatic pressure? Could could we see this get to the point where uh uh, you know, there's kinetic action where we're we're targeting actual, you know, physical locations for damage?
2: So anything that needs to be done in order to sort of change the game needs to be done with sort of this concept of being reasonable and proportional. So, you know, I don't think anybody with any good sense is advocating dropping bombs on anyone overseas for doing this kind of thing. Um, Right. But there are many, many capabilities that the government has that they can bring into this fight. And that's sort of um, what changed – when the Biden administration designated ransomware as a national security threat, that really changed the game. That allowed uh, the U.S. government to do a lot of things. So number one, it got more resources to be able to put into the traditional way of doing things. So the organizations that were already in the fight are getting a lot more resources to do it. However, it also then unlocked the ability for the intelligence agencies, the military intelligence apparatus, and other parts of the government to now get into the fight because it's not just a pure criminal act anymore. Now these acts are considered national security threats, um, which then unlocks this entire other you know, bevy of capabilities.
1: What sort of capabilities do we suspect we're talking about here?
2: So when you're when you're in a situation where the traditional law enforcement model either isn't working or is being blocked by an uncooperative adversary that's when you start to conduct operations that will allow you to do several things. So number 1, gathering information in order to have like irrefutable evidence that We know who the criminals are. We know where they live. We know what they're up to. And then that is presented to that uncooperative government in such a way that there is no legitimate way that they can deny that that they are in their country. And that will then enable sort of what you were talking about, about adding that diplomatic pressure. So if you can present them with a really clear target package on exactly what this group is, who the members are and what they're doing, where they live, to where it's completely irrefutable, if they then do not cooperate, serious repercussions can be brought on them from a diplomatic perspective, especially, you know, uh, additional sanctions or other types of activities that would put pressure on the government to comply with this, you know, rock solid case. There will be some situations where a government still will just deny you know they'll deny mm. deny deny counter accuse at every opportunity mm-hmm. right and so when you're in a situation like that the the law enforcement model like completely breaks down and so we would have to take matters you know into our own hands to protect our country from a national security perspective and so that's where you know disruption operations come into play Uh, where they make it impossible for these actors to do what they're doing, or they make it impossible for them to actually continue to profit from these crimes and then drive them into doing something else that is not targeting our country. So take
1: away the the ability for them to make money. I, I guess make it so that it's really, it's no longer worth their time.
2: Yeah, because really what it boils down to is right now, the ransomware actors that are operating from countries that are sheltering them have literally no consequences for their actions. They are they're operating with impunity, they're hiding behind you know, their big brother, um, and they're, they're just reaping millions and millions out of these companies that they're victimizing. And so you have to change their risk calculus a bit. You have to show them that they can be found They can be touched and that their lives can be made very, very difficult if they're going to continue down this road and maybe it would be a better idea for them to do something else with their time.
1: What about coming after the the ability for them to actually exchange the money, you know, going after some of the cryptocurrencies? Are there options there that seem practical and achievable?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, It it really needs to be part of a like a holistic strategy in order to do this. Like you can't just do pure disruption. Can't just do pure, you know, threat actor, like hunting and targeting. It's got to be part of a, of a large weave of a campaign that involves, you know, all the traditional things that law enforcement does, all the traditional things that the State Department would do, all the things that Treasury would do, all woven together in, you know, a whole of government effort to tackle this problem. So with cryptocurrency specifically, there are exchanges out there that are not following what would be sort of the normal banking rules about knowing your customer. Um, And so uh, things that would help them comply with anti-money laundering statutes um, and anti-funding of terrorism statutes. Those, those kind of things, if applied to these exchanges, would then force them to know exactly who is transferring money to who, and then that could be used in a law enforcement capacity to prevent uh, them from, from moving money that way, or at least doing it anonymously, um, which could create options to recover those funds.
1: You know, when I think about um, the potential for offensive operations from some of our intelligence agencies, you know, their ability to reach out and, you know, do some of the things that they would do to do harm to the systems and capabilities of, of our adversaries. Do you think it's likely that those are the kinds of things that may happen, but we would never hear about them?
2: I mean, very likely, if if anything starts to go down that road, in most cases, you know, none of us would ever know about it. Mm. Um, and and in most cases, like, you know, doing direct offensive cyber actions is not the right answer either. Because in most cases, these actors, if some of their infrastructure were to be destroyed, they can spin up new infrastructure sometimes in minutes and just continue doing what they're doing. So it's it's not as easy as you know, firing a cyber bullet and the problem goes away. It, it really needs to be part, it needs to be like one tool in this larger campaign where maybe that's the right thing over in this corner, but in this other corner, it's diplomatic pressure. In this other corner, it's, it's starting to squeeze them on how they can turn cryptocurrency into fiat and you slowly crush and dismantle and destroy the organization from all sides.
1: You know, I, I think about, um, for example, spam, you know, just sort of regular run-of-the-mill spam. I, I kind of think of that as being a solved problem, you know, that spam rarely makes it into my inbox. Uh, the, the 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 mail providers, have they do a really good job with that. Do you think we, we're headed in a direction where we might see that with ransomware, where enough changes happen that um, it
2: becomes a thing of the past? I think we can get there. But what it will take is the will to really drive this campaign and to be relentless. The message needs to be sent that this is unacceptable and we will no longer sit back and just play defense because essentially it's really easy to get past the defenses if you're on the offensive side. Um, you're seeing you know, companies are getting hacked every single day and some of them are spending millions of dollars on you know security software and and other things for their defense but there is literally no network that's unhackable with enough time and energy you can get in anywhere so the the really key here is to let them know that we are no longer just going to sit here and play defense and we are going to come after you And you need to stop what you're doing or you're going to face the full force of not just the U.S. government, but all of the allied governments around the world uh, who are no longer going to tolerate this behavior.
1: You know, it also strikes me as one of those rare things in this time of, you know, divided uh, uh, politics. This is something that has support from all sides. There's there's nobody who's pro ransomware.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I mean – um you'll see that it's something that really impacts everyone you know when the when the colonial pipeline was was taken down briefly it caused you know massive reactions on the entire east coast of the US i mean we saw cases where people were like filling trash bags with gasoline because they were mm. in a panic about shortages and they were you know their cars were lighting on fire so like even that you know relatively small disruption you know caused people to go crazy Um, And then there was the the JBS Meats um, started to have an impact on the food supply. And then recently, there were two farming cooperatives that were taken offline by ransomware, and that had another impact on the food supply. So, I mean, when you start messing with people's fuel and food and potentially the electric grid— they're definitely messing with hospitals during the pandemic. You're starting to touch people at every level of their lives. And, and it's really starts to feel like our country is under attack at this point. And when that happens, you know, Americans unify, regardless of what's going on. If our country is under attack, we get together and, and we fight together.
0: All right, Joe. What do you think? Great interview. Uh, I want to. I want to say something. When it comes to international law enforcement, we are probably yeah. not going to reach an agreement with Russia.
1: <laughs> you you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Inter- Inter- international <laughs> uh, diplomacy pundit Joe Kerrigan goes right. out on a limb. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm also gonna.
0: I'm also gonna make another risky prediction. We're not gonna do that with China either. Um, oh wow! It's just not gonna happen. Uh reasonable and proportional when he he says uh, Adam says about uh, the response that we that we have to these things and it's true we can't we can't just go about threatening to drop bombs on people just because they have uh, a crime problem in their country you know there's mm-hmm. you know we, we talk about how a lot of this crime comes out of Nigeria uh, and honestly the Nigerian authorities do not take kindly to it they they really want to be a a, a player on the world stage they're a, a, a you know a, a very populous country. They are the most populous country in Africa, and they are trying to, to develop as well. And they do not appreciate having these scammers operating within their borders. So they cooperate with us. They work with us, right? Uh, which is nice. Um, it's interesting that the Biden administration's action classifying ransomware as a national security threat means that they're putting more resources into it, and intelligence agencies can now join the fight. Mm. I like I like that for this case, but – I want to temper that with a little bit of caution (laughs) because it's very easy to say something's a national security threat. And then all of a sudden you get all kinds of resources thrown at it. And I can imagine that going badly um, Mm. for, for a lot of different people. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I just, I, I mean, I'm on board with it for this case, but as, as citizens in a, in a free society, we must be ever vigilant um, you know, there's a saying. I think it's on the National Archives that uh, perpetual vigilance is the price of liberty, and that's mm. what we have to have here. Yeah, I'm glad that the government has the ability to to take ransomware seriously, but I'm I'm concerned not for the immediate future, but for the distant future that this could very easily be abused.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I think is a good point. Yep. I
0: like what Adam is saying about building a case that you present. Uh, you know, you present to your to the foreign power, uh, but there are two countries that come to mind immediately. and I've already mentioned them that will always deny and counter accuse. Um, right. that's just the way <laughs> these guys do business. It's just it's how they are. Yeah, um, this is an economic problem, and if we can change the economic model, we can disincentivize the activity, which is uh, which would be great, right? I've been talking about that for a number of years. How this is this is an economic issue. Um, and if you can disincentivize or change the incentive structure, you might go a long way to solving this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's that's one of the reasons that we say uh, there are some people are pitching the idea of making ransomware payments illegal. If you make ransomware payments illegal, advocates argue that that would make the ransomware problem go away. If nobody can pay ransomware, there's no economic incentive. Um, I'm also a big fan of the Stevens, Dubner, and Levitt, though. And they have uh they have uh, uh three books written on the nature of perverse incentives, right? Uh freak economics, mm. super freakonomics, and think like a freak. Um and uh, you you don't really know what's gonna happen when you when you try to disincentivize something a certain way. So you have to really be careful when you're doing that.
1: Right, uh, right. Yeah. So, that reminds me of um I probably back in the eighties, uh, back when um all this, you know, lots of a hot consumer item were uh, car alarms, right? Right. That people, people were getting their cars broken into, so oh, great, we'll put a car alarm alarm in. That led to carjacking, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, there's another story that they talk about in one of their books. I can't remember which one it is, um, but it, there was a there was a country that put a bounty out on snakes. They had a snake problem, so they were paying people to go out into uh, into the the wilderness and kill snakes and you brought the snakes back in and they give you a bounty for them. Mm-hmm. Uh well people started raising snakes and then just killing them and bringing <laughs> oh, them in.
1: Oh man. That's what happened. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So oh.
0: yeah. Poor snakes, right? Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of our audience is is sympathetic, but I'm sure there's a part of
1: our audience is like, I don't care. Kill all the <laughs> snakes. The snakes have what's coming to them <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> for being so snaky. Right. <laughs>
0: I agree with Adam when he talks that taking direct counteraction like cyber attack on performing a cyber attack on the uh, malicious actors is probably not going to do it. I think that will rarely work. These bad guys are able to set up new infrastructure instantaneously almost. Uh, really, what is most dangerous is the activities uh, and the software that they have, You know, the skills and the software. Uh, taking down their infrastructure will not impact it. It needs to be aimed at their ability to operate and to monetize those operations. Yeah. Um, I, I like a lot of what Adam said about uh, money laundering and 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 financial structure, and you know, putting putting more financial regulation on. I'm not sure that's the exact right answer, but um, you know, I don't think that there are. I think there are plenty of ways to move around that situation, particularly with anonymous cryptocurrencies like Monero and Zcash. Um, mm-hmm. I think those are uh, those are those are going to make that you know putting the hindrance on this very difficult. Uh, and and not to say that those are strictly for criminal purposes. They have legitimate purposes as well. Uh, you know, think of them like tools. I can use a hammer to, uh, to, to build a house or I can use a hammer to tear, to, you know, to break into a house. It's, right. it's a tool that I can use for good or bad. Um, I, I, one of the things he, he, he talked about at the end, towards the end of the interview is that these guys are, they're no longer masquerading as the Robin Hood, you know, good guy types, you know, David versus, versus Goliath. You know, we're, we're only going after the only after the uh, the big evil corporations. They, they're they not doing that anymore. They're, they're going after critical infrastructure, hospitals, meat packing plants, fuel delivery systems. They're, they're doing that because it creates a lot of discord and they think that it, that makes their, their targets much more willing to pay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Adam Flatley from Redacted for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time.